This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, we sit down with coach and coach educator David Baird. He discusses some of his football development programmes and the success he has had in engaging young players and their parents, his scoreboard soccer idea and the benefits of using this scheme both in a small-sided game context and in skill acquisition. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, David, appreciate you spending um, a bit, a bit of your time with me. I guess first question. I know we caught up a little bit off air, but how are you? All, all good? Uh, yeah, I'm all, I'm all good. Thanks. Kind of no complaints. We're just chatting about how, uh, you know, busy things are at the moment, but it's all kind of positive stuff. Obviously, the past kind of uh, year and a half, going on, on maybe two years, has been uh, tough. There's not a lot happening, so it's been good just to get more and more programs back, more and more players playing, and more and more in-phase meetings and all this kind of stuff. So, um, aye, everything's really quite hectic at the moment. A lot of forward planning for 2022 and a couple of exciting things I'm, I'm doing at work and, and beyond that as well. So, no, all, all good, to be honest, Michael, no complaints. Good. So, obviously, I, I saw some of your work online. I think there's some really interesting bits for us to discuss, I guess, some personal stuff from you that you've created, but then also... I imagine some um, organisational stuff that you get some quite core cool opportunities, etc. as well. So I think for people that maybe haven't come across you before, um, maybe on a little bit of a whirlwind, do you want to go through, I guess, some of what your major roles are, what they entail, and we can obviously dig a little bit deeper into those from there? Uh, yeah, so I mean, um, I, I just love football, to be honest, Michael. So it's it's one thing about me, it's always quite hard to, to pinpoint, you know, what aspect of the game I'm involved in because it changes all the time uh, to be honest and I've, I've had a lot of conversations recently and uh, I know we'll probably go down the path of, of scoreboard soccer which is my kind of current project but you know if, I, if we have a chat again this time next year it might be something else um, so I've been involved in the game obviously as a, a as a player just kind of grassroots and, and playing as a, as a kid I've always played but um, involved in a, a coaching capacity for about 16 years now um, so that's you know coaching and, and summer camps and um, that kind of progressed to football development, where we're kind of using football to um, engage as many people in the sport as we can. So I've been involved in, in walking football, uh, disability football, uh, boys and girls uh, football. Um, I'm a qualified coach educator currently with the, the Scottish FA. Um, I've, uh, yeah, I've just got, got loads going on. Um, and as you say, at the moment, probably the main thing that I'm doing is, is scoreboard soccer. But I'm also doing quite a lot of work in, in schools at the moment, which is really I'm really enjoying, and because it's kind of a slightly different challenge to what a lot of my a lot of my work is involved. Obviously, working with grassroots clubs, um, you know, performance programs, and, and footballers. So you kind of have people that want to be there and people that like football. Um, design and school content is really interesting because it's people that need to be there and they don't all like football. You know, you can imagine yourself what. You know, a classroom environment's like, um, and then taking them into the gym hall. So, yeah, I've just got loads going on. You know, football's just something I I really enjoy, and it's it's gave me so many great opportunities. Whether that just be meeting friends through going to games and and playing five sides, or you know, I've been over and I've coached abroad and things like this as well. So, um, I, it's about it never it never ends, but that's the that's the beauty of it, I think. Looking and uh, leading on from your development side, so you obviously mentioned there kind of being in football development. For you, what does that 
um, entail? What does that look like from a, I guess, week to week basis? Yeah, it's just seen um, how football can help people. Really, you know, I, I probably had a light bulb moment four or five years ago. Um, always talking about how much I like football. You know, talking about games, being a St Mirren fan, going and following the Scotland national team, coaching to try and win games, but. You know, I probably had a light bulb moment four or five years ago to realise I'm probably not in it for football. I'm probably more in it for people. You know, I really like the energy of a load of kids running around a, a summer camp and, and being daft and being silly. I like the walking football programmes when we go for a, a, a tea or a coffee after it and we, we chat about their memories of the, the game in, in years gone by. Um, I, I like doing the, the disability football stuff where you're potentially knocking down barriers. I, I loved it when I was over in America and, and some of my sessions were actually teaching kids who's family background was maybe baseball, American football, uh, basketball, how to kick the ball for the very first time. So for me, football development's about like um, bringing football to as many people as possible and, and bringing it in as many spaces where it will actually you know, have an advantage to people's lives. Um, you know, whether that is knocking down barriers and, and helping people get physically active through the fun of football, you know, helping mental health um, or just creating opportunities. You know, a lot of the, the girls and women's programmes we're putting on at the moment you give the opportunity, you, you book a pitch and you, you put a coach out there with some footballs and some cones and, you know, 100 girls signs up and it just kind of, I mean, it's great, but it kind of makes you feel a bit sad that that opportunity hasn't been there before, you know, sometimes in the in the girls game. Uh, I, I take advantage, you know, my, my gender and my age. If I wanted a game of five sides, I could probably go and find that next week. Uh, I've got friends who are female who are similar ages with me and they just can't find anywhere to play. So that that's what football development's all about. It's about developing the game. Um, well, all that's just to create opportunities to get the, the mental and physical benefits of and the social benefits of football. Uh, or well, that's opportunities for people to go and play at whatever level they want to play at. If they have ambitions to, you know, you need to develop pathways for people to go and play the game at very high levels as well. Of course, I get that. But you also need to create pathways for people just to stay within the game. And if the, the game's getting a bit too competitive, a bit too serious or... The training commitment is is becoming a bit too much because they've got you know school things going on and other hobbies and other interests. Then we also need to create pathways that just keeps people in the game because we know all the benefits of it and and all the enjoyment it can bring. You know, coach education pathways you need to develop that and which we're thankfully very good at uh, in in Scotland. Um, so yeah, that's what that's what football development's all about. You know, I could probably sit here and name 10, 15, 20 programs, um, because there's so many different you know markets out there for football. So in terms of, um, I guess, like your leading projects or your leading programs, the ones that take up most of your time or the ones that you, you know you've had to have most success with, what would you say is your highlight program and kind of what have you put in place to allow people to maybe access football when they wouldn't have done otherwise? Yeah, well, well, I first kind of, you know, graduated, if you want to say that, from a kind of part-time coach into a full-time development officer um, in a role with the Scottish FA where I was kind of football development officer for West Lothian. So that's one of our regions here in, in Scotland. Um, and that was creating those pathways. Uh, and I think we did some really good work to try and have a, a participation pathway for people to stay in the game that was age and stage appropriate because they didn't really have that. There wasn't a lot of education around what you should be doing with really, really young kids and what you should be doing with um, them throughout the age groups and things like that. So one of the kind of maybe flagship programmes I've done that I was really proud of because I've seen the enjoyment and the benefits it brought was, you know, when I went into West Lothian and I did a kind of mapping exercise and I seen three, four and five-year-old sessions and you know, trying to get them to pass and move and they're trying to get them to spread out and they're trying to get them to hold a position and you're like, this is just not age and stage appropriate. You know, it needs to be motor skills, social skills, hand-eye coordinating, 
you know, bouncing, running, jumping, stopping, games of tag tag, rolling, throwing, catching the ball, all these things that they can't do with their bodies and they're not going to be proficient to do with the ball yet. Um, so it's like, well, how do we do that and how do we kind of change this culture? Because you would see the coaches working with four and five-year-olds and having what I call kind of an instruction-based approach, you know, trying to say things like, you know, spread out or pass with the inside of your foot. We probably know, you know, if there's anyone listening as as parents, you know, the listening skills take a bit of time for kids to develop, you know, but they are very impressionable. You know, they're more kind of visual learners. Um, so we started with a, a program called Tall and Tiny Footballs, which was essentially, you know, don't drop your son or daughter off and then leave for an hour. Um, and then you come back and the whole time they've just been wanting their laces tied. They've had to go to the bathroom, you know, not listening, crying, waiting for mum or dad to come back. You know, you take part in the session as well. So it was about adult and children's sessions. Um, and it was really important, the education piece around it, you know, saying to mum or dad or brother or sister, whoever it is, that the person that the kid looks up to in their life, look, you're not here to coach. You know, don't you relay the messages I say to the kids. You're here to take part in a fun football session. So when I ask all the adults, you know, to run around like aeroplanes, the impressionable visual learning kids, they'll do the same. When I say to the adults, right, guys, come in and, and sit down and we'll do the next game. All the adults run in, the, the, the kids will follow. And that was really, really important. And I found that was the best way uh, to coach that that younger age group, you know, through following the example of the positive role models within their life. Um, instead of saying, you know, don't use your hands, if it was a drill where you're not using your hands, they can see mum or dad or brother or sister dribbling the ball and not using their hands. Um, and of course, it's fine if a, if a kid picks the ball up. But the amount of benefit I've seen in that programme for fun, for mental and physical health benefits for the adults, because they were getting some physical activity. There was a lot of mums in particular that were playing football for the first time and thought, you know, this was great. There were a lot of kids just running around and, um, you know, learning. They, they were getting so much better. And then obviously the beauty of it is when mum or dad doesn't need to come anymore, we still need to develop, you know, a resilient, independent children. Then they can just stop coming, you know, first couple of weeks, four, five, six weeks, come in the session. And then when you're ready, we can hand the kids over to the to the next programme, which was called Storybook Soccer, which was all about engaging kids through through storylines. But it was really great. We did a big bit of education at that kind of bridge to say to the parents, the beauty of Tall Tiny Footballs was we were taking the parents on the journey and we were getting into their lives early. You know, we could say to the parents, okay, now you need to step back and the kid needs to listen to the coach and needs to, you know, let them play and problem solve. Like, you can't be joystick coaching from the sideline, you know, pass, dribble, shoot. So we could do that whole education piece around sideline behaviour early. Or we could say, okay, they're going to the next stage in the journey. And by the way, we're always looking for coaches. So if you want to coach. So the adults kind of had only two pathways. They can now take a seat back and become a supporter. So cheering on their son or daughter. Or they could get all in and they could become a coach. But we were able to give them that. You can't be that kind of in-between where you're like a parent, but you're coaching from the sideline. So that was one that I was I was really proud of because it kind, kind of set the culture quite early within the community. Because, you know, we were speaking to granddads and, and, and grandmothers and stuff who were coming along to these sessions. We were getting to know the brothers and sisters. We were signposting mums into the, 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 the older walking football for the older ladies and things like that. Um, so yeah, West Lothian, I think we put in a really good pathway, you know, where we went tall and tiny footballs to storybook soccer, to scoreboard soccer, to strategy soccer, where they just kind of, the programs aged with the kids. Um, and what we've done as well is we've partnered all these programs with the local clubs, um, as best as we could. So we could signpost kids when they're ready into their local football teams. Um, but they could also still attend hours for extra technical sessions. And then maybe the coaches at the clubs could do a little bit on, 
you know, tactics and strategy and all those things that um, that, that are maybe a little bit more serious. But the, the good thing about running these programmes parallel to club football was if any kids fell out of love with the game in club football, they didn't stop playing the game altogether. They could just come back into our participation pathway, as we say, you know, particularly if kids are going down growth spurts and puberty and or they're maybe taking a dip in form or something's happening at home life and they, they, they can't commit to three training sessions in a game. We ran all these participation programs um, uh, alongside. So, yeah, I was really proud of that work that I did in West Lothian, trying to get a full participation pathway for the for the communities there. Um, and then that led me to to my current role, which is in girls and women's game, which, as you know, is a, a massive area of growth, uh, which I'm really, really enjoying. And I think we're doing some good work in that space as well. Yeah, so I've got two questions off the back of that. So I guess the, the first one for me is, um, obviously, you haven't done that work uh, do you see now the the importance of having like role models for those younger children in terms of it can obviously be parents or brothers or sisters, but then when that does transition to the coach, actually the importance that a coach can play on a young person's life, either positive or negative. And then you mentioned briefly around um, kind of parents having two pathways, either being a coach or being a supporter did you see, um, I guess, positives in the, the sideline behaviour? Because I know that is something in, in, you know, that can be challenging. But I'd imagine, you know, if, if you've seen or if you've joined in a session and um, with your child from a younger age group and then you realise that actually distracting them and you don't understand an instruction or talking when you yeah. shouldn't and all those types of bits, actually being in the session probably makes it more prevalent than what just watching it from the side. So did you see a benefit in terms of, like sideline behavior of uh, parents almost going, yeah, you know what? I've joined in. Now I'm going to step right back and just watch and just let them enjoy it rather than me trying to coach them from the side. Yeah, it's it's amazing, like the the benefits we've seen, but it's it's really really hard work because you know sometimes the people that need to hear the messages aren't the ones that will tune into our uh, coach education online or or come along to a pitch or attend a, a tournament football session. But it was so good because most parents with sideline behaviour and whatever it may be um, tend not to be doing it because they're bad people it's just they don't have education in that particular that particular space um, you know it might be the first time of them being a, a, a parent taking a son or a daughter along to a team and they're maybe just doing what, what, what they experienced when they were younger and they don't know any better so you know being in Tolentine footballs and, and having the parents nearby um, it was great to build that culture straight away because you would, you would hear the, the parents um, you know, if, I, if I'm playing that kind of simple game of traffic lights, but I'm like, okay, green light, you know, dribble around and, and red light means stop. Um, I just want the parents to do it and the kids to pick up subconsciously what they're doing over a couple of weeks, you know, or, or however long they're going to come to the session. But you would hear the parents say, you stop the ball with the sole of your foot and, you, you know, don't use your hands. And then you go over and give that educational piece to say, like, look, we don't have magic voices. You know, if we did, we would just say, put the ball in the top corner from 20 yards. You know, they're not just going to be able to do it just because you tell them. Um, this is, you know, visual-based learning. They just need to see you do it. And then with time, they'll practice and they'll practice and they'll practice. And you could do all that and you could tell them why it's not, um, you know, beneficial to to be coaching from the from the sideline. You know, we don't actually want to give them the answers because then they're not actually learning. You know, they need to take ownership of the learning and um, they go to school for years and years and years and the teacher's not just giving them answers the teacher's not just saying 10 plus 10 is 20 and 20 plus 20 is 40 um, and, and and letting parents know that's essentially what you're doing by saying you know pass dribble and shoot you're just giving them answers and they're not going to be little problem solving good footballers in the long term the teacher will give them problems um, you know they'll say 
Uh, if you have 40 pence and you spend 10 pence on a chocolate bar, how much have you got left? Now, as adults and parents and teachers, we know the answer, but we need the kids to engage their brain, work out for themselves and take ownership of that learning. You know, we need to learn by doing. We learn to ride a bike by riding a bike. We learn to play a piano by playing a piano. You know, we need to let the kids learn by doing. And when you've had, you can probably imagine if you're coming to Math Hall and Tiny Session four, five, six weeks and you're getting these constant messages about the um, the detriment of giving instruction from the sideline, when they move on to the next programme and they join the team that we signpost them in, those parents are quite well versed and can hopefully build that culture for the other parents um, you know, around the uh, around the sideline about, you know, don't give them answers to questions, leave them with problems to solve. Um, particularly, again, we could do loads of education pieces around you know, data terminology, you know, saying things like get chalk on your boots just because you said that when you played and these kids are on a prestige 3G that doesn't have any chalk on it. You know, we, we do all this kind of stuff. You know, we, we, we say to the parents, like, um, you know, we really need to decide when you when you do this next step, um, do you want to appear to be a really good coach, you know, a really good soccer parent, or do you want to actually be a really good coach slash good soccer parent? Because it's, it's very different. You know, it's really trendy to look as if an you're an eligible football person these days because of Gary Neville on Monday Night Football and Pep Guardiola on Amazon Prime. That's how everybody wants to appear to be. Um, because you'll look great if you're shouting loads of instruction from the sideline. But they're really, really knowledgeable coaches. They know the answers, but they know not to give them the answers because then you're taking away all that learning and all that problem solving. Um, and when you say that to a whole group of, you know, 15, 20 mums and dads, right, we have a game today. Uh, remember, try not to look as if you know what you're talking about. Keep all your thoughts to yourself. Nobody wants to be that parent that just, you know, tries to appear as if they, they know what they're talking about. Um, so, yeah, we did loads of education around it, and it was tough. Like, you know, I've I've coached for 15, 16 years and read countless books on how young children learn and, and all that visual learning and things like that. So, if it's okay to say, I think a lot of the tall and tiny sessions that I delivered, they were getting a lot of that culture, and it was changing. But then you had to do a lot of coach education with other coaches who were out delivering it. There was only so many uh, people we could kind of reach with it. So I totally appreciate how, touch, how tough it is time-wise, particularly for volunteer coaches, um, which I've spent plenty of time doing as well, obviously. Yeah, and in terms of the uh, modelling or role modelling of for younger people, yeah. what were your experiences around that? Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's crucial because it kind of ties into the point of them being visual learners. Um, they, they probably won't remember exactly what you said, you know, in 10, 15 years time when they, they bump into you. Um, but they'll probably remember subconsciously your body language, the fact that you took time to speak to them. You, you know, ask them how their day was, what their favorite team is, you know, what they're up to this weekend, what, whatever it may be. Um, it's really crucial and, and something that I don't think should ever leave our, our heads as coaches is, you know, your football practice might be the best bit of the week. You know, sometimes we don't know what's going on in the kids' uh, lives or at school, if they have any issues. Um, so yeah, you need to be that positive role model that kind of gives them the, the the time of day. And you know, we we hear a lot about you know when we're doing coach education for tall and tiny footballs and storybook soccer, we hear a lot about that kid that's you know disruptive or attention seeking. And again, we need to do a bit of education around. Well, maybe they just need some attention. You know, maybe that's why they're attention seeking. So can you actually give those kids a role? Can you get them to set up a drill, or can you get them to be a team captain, or can you ask them what their favourite drill is and what they want to do today? Uh, and that role modelling is. It's so, so important um, and it's such a good tip for coaches, in, in my opinion. You know, look at them as people before players because they are. They're, they're people before they're, they're players. Um, and, and, and if you kind of subconsciously just see kids as little commodities to win under 10 football matches at the weekend, they'll feed off that. You know, they'll know your, your body language straight away. 
in your tone, etc., your frustrations, they, they'll know when they get an injury or they go through their growth spurt and they can't quite coordinate their feet or when a better player moves to the area that they're going to be out. But if you're investing in them as people, you really care about developing their, their people skills and their player skills, they're going to give you so much more back. You know, you, you read books and you watch you watch documentaries on, you know, the Sir Alex Ferguson's and, and unfortunately, you know, Walter Smith have had the sad news that he's he's passed away today and nobody ex players are ever really saying, um, oh yeah, his passing drills were quality, you know, or his finishing drills were great. It's always like I would run through a brick wall for that guy. You know, he knew my family, he invested in me, he knew my hobbies and all that kind of stuff. Now they don't show up on day one of training and think I'll run through a brick wall for this coach. That's the relationship and the role modeling that you do. Um, that they really invest them, and then you know the, the funny thing is, I, th- I think the more you invest in them as people, the more you get back from them as players. Uh, as I say, they really, really work hard for you, um, and, and take things on board. Um, so no, I think that that role model is really, really uh, important, and we would all love to develop the next Leo Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo, but I would really encourage coaches listening to this. Think about developing a colleague. You know, would you want to sit at, next to this person at a desk in ten or fifteen years' time? You know, are they? Humble, do they have sportsmanship, um, do they have people skills, do they have communication skills, do they have confidence to walk up and, and, and are they approachable? Um, I think that's really, really crucial. So you mentioned earlier around kind of, I think it was storyline soccer that you, you said about. Can you talk about yeah. some of the research around how um, the utilisation of stories or, or yeah, stories for children can be of benefit and then what that looked like in, in a practical setting? Yeah, well, uh, initially I didn't have uh, kind of much evidence-based approach to um, just experience, as I say, coaching for 16 years and trying to find what works for different ages and, and stages. And, and I think a lot of the younger ones in particular, you know, saying to them, OK, today the football's a pirate ship and we're going to sail around the sea. Um, and every time you go around the cone, um, that's you've got a bit of treasure and watch out for the sharks. Um, and these kids think that they're, you know, in the sea, sailing a pirate ship, collecting treasure, staying away from the sharks. But we know they're dribbling a ball on a pitch, round cones, avoiding the defender, you know, shielding the ball. It's just a fun way to engage them to, to do subconsciously what you wanted them to do in the first place. Because then the next week they come um, and they're aliens in space, you know, going around the planets, avoiding the asteroids. You know, the session may actually be the same because the fundamental movements of ball mastery and ball manipulation are probably always going to be there for the younger ones. But the storyline is what really, really... Um, engages them and just on that same setup because there's a couple of things that engage the young ones in my experience storylines are great but also autonomy you know giving them a say so at the end of storybook soccer sessions we used to give out a kind of ready reckoner of of a, a, a paragraph where they could fill in the blanks so it was like you know today we dribbled our and, and ball would be in brackets but you could say um sorry today we and instead of dribble it would be drove and instead of ball it would be car and, you know, instead of ball, it can be playing. Instead of dribble, it can be fly. Um, and we did ones where they had to fill out what they did within the session. And they could take that home to, to mum or dad or, or whoever it may be and show them what they did that week. So there's a wee bit of education around, you know, colours and numbers and planes and whatever it was we were doing. But then there would also be blank ones for them to fill out. And if they came next week and said, we want to do this one, and some of them would come back with ones that are on, you know, Frozen 2 and, you know, being Elsa and trying to stay away from whatever it may be, you know, uh, being Aladdin and flying your magic carpet and, you know, being a lion and staying away from Scar and avoiding the stampede, you know, the kids would come back with their favourite storylines and that really, really engaged them. You know, if they designed the session 
and some of them are a bit da daft, some of them didn't make any sense, but you know that that, that doesn't matter. And um, if they design the session, they're going to be really, really engaged in it. So as I say, yeah, storylines and autonomy is really, really crucial. Uh, autonomy is more important than ever in my coaching experience now because that's what we're competing with, you know, in their home lives. They have loads of autonomy. They they can literally watch their favorite show on Netflix or YouTube anytime they want. And probably when we were younger, Michael, you had five or six channels and somebody else chose what was on them. So if you didn't like them, you could go and get autonomy outside by kicking the ball around and putting out some jumpers and creating a game. You know, kids really like being involved in the, the decision making of what they're doing. But now they can choose their favorite show. They can get on social media, chat to their friends anytime they wanted. We would have loved that when we were younger. We need to admit we, we didn't have those accesses to social media platforms. Um, they can play video games where, you know, we didn't have a lot of autonomy. We only had Mario moving from right to left on the screen. So it did get a bit monotonous after a while, but they can play games where they can go anywhere. It's multi-directional. They can design the worlds. They can go to different countries. They can speak to people in, in China while playing against someone in New Zealand. It's really, really um, an exciting alternative we have. And, and, and we need to admit that. They can stay at home and turn themselves into celebrities if they want through Snapchat and TikTok, TikTok and Instagram or whatever it may be. So we can't have them come to our football session and take all that autonomy away because then they're going to choose the alternative. You know, we can't say to them, you must pass with inside of your foot to that cone and then you must run to that cone and you must wait on your turn till the next ball comes. You know, all this kind of, yeah, yeah, over-prescribed training um, is not what younger kids enjoy. So yeah, storylines and, and autonomy is really, really uh, crucial. And that's why in storybook soccer, as much as we had that kind of storyline structure, we had loads of free play as well. You know, loads of just come in and, and they do what you want. You know, goals and balls and ladders and hurdles all around the place and they could just play you know, tag tag and passing and shooting to each other and just messing around, cartwheels, it didn't matter because, again, it goes back to those more skills. Um, a lot of the things that we would have picked up, you find more skills through climbing trees and wrestling over sticks and, you know, fighting each other. There, a lot of kids aren't getting now, so we, we need to build that in as well, that that autonomy. Um, so not a lot of research, just experience, um, but luckily through the Scottish FA role that I have in the girls and women's game, we've got this really exciting programme from... Uh, you know, UEFA and Disney have partnered on a thing called Playmakers, and it's a real evidence-based approach on um, developing particularly young girls between the age of five and five and eight, uh, and it's all based around storyline. Story so it was almost like a really nice justification of stuff that myself and some of the other co uh, coaches I work with have been doing for a long time, um, now that Disney have kind of backed this programme, and it's yeah, it's probably one for Google for anyone that's listening to the Disney Playmakers programme, because it, it really does add weight to the benefit of storylines. Um, and the tough thing as well is you're going to have those coaches that kind of sneeze at that a wee bit and they think it should be really serious and we have to, I don't know, we have to do phases of play or attack against defence for really young kids. And in reality, I don't I don't think that's the way. I think that's really interesting what you said around the autonomy side. Now, obviously, everyone appreciates that it's a challenging situation at the moment with, you know, people spend more and more time on their phone or, or watching Netflix, as you said. But I've never heard it described on the actual, it's their choice of what they want to do. And that's what you're competing against. It's, it's not the playing football to watching TV. It's the, I get to do what I want to do by what I'm watching compared to being told what I have to do. And that might actually be the difference between the two, not so much the actual, not the actual um, activity. It's what the undertones of the activity is. Yeah, no, totally. And as I say, we, we would have loved it as kids. You know, we obviously had kind of house 
phones and phone boxes and it, it costs money and you had to put top-up cards and your, your very first mobile phones. Like, if we could go back and be 10 or 11 years old and have a device where we can phone any of our friends anytime we wanted and actually see them and speak to them through a phone, you know, you might say, well, I'm not going to go to training because I'm going to sit on the phone and, and, and speak to David for a while. You know, you might do it. So, yeah, it is that that decision. Because, um, unfortunately, I see over a variety of programmes, a lot of younger players will continue football. They won't make that choice. Um because mum or dad wants them to keep going to football when they're young enough and, you know, they're humble enough to go and enjoy it. But the second they get a choice of their own, you know, to drop out of football, they, they maybe will. Um, because the football training's not had all that autonomy and all that and all that fun. Uh, and it's actually a big part of why I do what I do. And I know we're going to come on to scoreboard soccer, but, you know, my playing journey, I loved street football and I loved dribbling the ball and I loved taking people on and, you know, pretending to be Brazilian Ronaldo. You know, I'm not saying I was ever that good at football. I don't think I was ever good at it, but I loved dribbling. And then you would go to football training, um, you know, in Scotland in November when it's raining and you would run around the pitch for half the session and then you would play two touch. And that was it. Every session, um, you know, you'd play 10 v 10, two touch. You're lucky if you got four, six touches of the ball. Um, and the coaches, with all due respect them, because they obviously would have been volunteers and, and not knowing any better, just doing, doing what they thought was right. They could have had Ronaldinho in the session and they just wouldn't have known because no one was allowed to take more than two touches. Um, so my, my playing journey, there wasn't a lot of autonomy. There wasn't a lot of fun. There wasn't a lot of freedom to create. There wasn't a lot of encouragement. Um, and that's kind of what scoreboard soccer has been designed out of, um, is to try and do the opposite, really. So that seems like a quite a nice segue moving across. So for people that maybe haven't uh, seen this or don't know the principles behind it, can you just explain to us, I guess without visual aids, which may be challenging, but um, <laughs> what it is and then what some of the benefits are within a session? Um, yeah, so I, I really, really invested and engaged in this idea of a games-based approach. Um, so letting the game be the teacher, you know, playing 3v3, 4v4, 5v5, and trying to supplement street football of years gone by, which developed loads of good players. So in my coaching practice, you know, out there on the cold face, delivering sessions five, six times a week, we started just to play small-sided games. And I've seen loads of benefits, and I still do small-sided games, loads and loads of benefits, but I've also seen some barriers. You know, I've seen some um, one player getting the lion's share of the ball, dribbling by everybody, scoring all the time. Other players not really engaging. Some players not really trying because... Um, when Michael's team score, we're just going to get the ball anyway, so not really defending. And and I thought, right, well, maybe there's an extra layer to small-sided games that can make it just a wee bit better. So what we did was, right, guys, it's 4v4, small-sided game, but I've set up this little crossbar challenge next to the pitch, and if you do something I think is really good, you get to come try and hit the crossbar. And that would be a real basic example of what scoreboard soccer is. You know, it's not about the scoreline in the game, although that will influence things. It's about the scoreboard at the side. So yeah, you're actually manipulating it where effort is what is going to win you the games. So we're playing that wee scoreboard soccer game. You know, Michael tries a wee bit of creativity, maybe something we've did in the session beforehand, tries a wee step over. Michael, I love that you're trying to do what we did in training in the game, come across the scoreboard. Michael comes over, hits the crossbar, that's a goal to his team. Just gets added to the scoreline in the game, you know. And you can still praise, obviously, that kid who gets the ball, dribbles by everybody and scores. Fantastic, David come to the scoreboard, he's now over there working on uh, having a, a fun shot at crossbar challenge and the ball can get shared a little bit more between the players who, who maybe wouldn't get a touch um, if he was out there dominating as he can. 
So that's all scoreboard soccer is. It's adding this visual scoreboard. We've got ones where it's like putting balls on cones or, you know, finding. Sometimes I put my wedding ring underneath the cones. It's the first one to find it. You know, you come and flip them over uh, or trying to pass a ball into a net or hit the back of the net without the ball bouncing. You know, your listeners can get signposted to obviously scoreboardsoccer.com where there's loads of these games and, and more, but just found so many benefits to it. Um, kids are competitive by nature. Sometimes when we play small-sided games, it gets really one-sided really quickly or we don't know what the score is. This gives you that visual scoreboard. And I can tell you from experience, the second you say, Sarah, great communication, come over to the fun scoreboard, all the players are starting to communicate now. So all you're trying to do is praise positive behaviours. And the more you praise it, the more they do it, the more they do it, the more you form some habits. So I found some real success uh, with it, to be honest, and the feedback's been uh, been great. So, yeah, that was going to be my question. So when we're looking at signposting towards specific actions, um, what examples have you got where you've had particularly good outcomes? So you mentioned communication there. Is there any other particular skills or areas that you've worked on that you've had real success with it? Yeah, well, it's very individualized. Obviously, as a coach, you might have like a culture or something that you value. So if you praise passing and moving a bit more, then you're going to get more and more passing and moving. You know, if you want really creative players, but it's really individualized. So if I have a player, you know, sometimes I have a player that I'm just working on him or her getting more touches of the ball because they're quite disengaged. So when Rebecca touches the ball, I'm saying, I love the fact you're trying to get involved, you know, come over to the fun scoreboard. And as long as your scoreboards are fun, she's going to be really motivated to try and get back over there. And Rebecca's going to get more touches of the ball. If you do have that player, you know, David, that maybe dribbles all the time, you know, again, don't coach that out of them because that's worth its weight in gold. Players that can take people on. But if you have been working on them, you know, scanning and releasing it a little bit more, then you'll praise that and you'll do it more. It's it's really, really important that young players know that effort is what we value. So effort is what they keep giving us. Whereas small sided games on their own, it might be the outcome that's valued a wee bit more, you know, with who won the game. But this is all about effort. So, if I've been working on Michael on shooting more and Michael shoots and it goes 15 yards wide, I might still say, Michael, I love the fact you had a shot come to the scoreboard and he'll be motivated to shoot again and again and again. And the more you value the effort, the outcome's going to improve. Practice makes perfect. If you've been working on um, Michael trying to get back and helping his team, he might sprint back 20 yards, miss the tackle. You might still praise the effort to sprint back. So what you have in scoreboard soccer, you've got a small-sided game you have this kind of coaching tool where you can just encourage the behaviours that you really, really want to see. And I found that the kids have, 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 have really, really bought into it. Um, resilience as well. I, I, had, I had a particular player that was just maybe going through a bit of a phase that the second anyone went in on him and touched them, it would be on the ground. And I'm saying, you know, Graham, if you show a wee bit of resilience, if you can just get up and he'll get up, yeah, come to the scoreboard, that's great. You know, if you can get up and play, we want you to play. If you're genuinely injured, you need to let us know. You know, so yeah, resilience is one of them, particularly for those players that maybe are a wee bit more talented and you want to see a bit more from them before you send them to the scoreboard. Uh, but that that's that's the benefits, you know. Um, what one of the biggest bits of feedback the coaches are enjoying is that player that would maybe dominate small sided games. You're not stifling their development. You're not saying you now need to play two touch, which was obviously my journey, as I said, or you need to pass before you score. You're you're still praising the fact that they take on three or four players, because as a coach. So you've got someone that can take on three or four players, you need to try and get them to take on five or six. That's development. So you can say, well done, come to the scoreboard. I do one scoreboard that's, you know, shooting practice, beat the goalie. And I'll maybe say to that quite talented player, I want you to keep shooting until you miss. 
And that they, they're getting more practice. They're getting some individual practice, maybe some individual coaching points from me at the scoreboard on striking the ball. But if you were to watch this game from above, you, you know, using a drone, you would still see loads of kids playing football and one kid just striking the ball into the back of the net. And what they won't see, the kind of hidden coaching is, I'm just having a wee disguised way of having that kid off the pitch for a couple of seconds longer, just so all the players can share the ball. But then you have Rebecca comes over to the shooting scoreboard, who's maybe not one of the stronger players, and you're saying, Rebecca, I want you to keep keep shooting until you score. So you can do some coaching at the scoreboard, particularly if it's a passing, dribbling, or shooting scoreboard, you can do some one-to-one. I've got some throw-in scoreboards. You know, if you take a legal throw-in, and it bounces in a kind of, you know, four-cone box, that's going to be a point for your team. So that, that player that comes over and takes a good throw-in, brilliant point to your team, get back on. That player that comes over and maybe lifts her back leg or, or, or doesn't release the ball behind their head. Okay, let's try that again. I want, you know, there's a bit of coaching at the scoreboard um, as well. So, yeah, it's a very individualised programme. You've got a small-sided game going on and you can you can try and catch them doing good. That's a wee uh, coaching uh, quote that I really like that someone fed back to me about scoreboard soccer. Really likes how it's about catching them doing good because sometimes our mindset as coaches is, well, what are they doing wrong? What are they doing badly? And what do I need to improve? Scoreboard soccer is all about letting them play and praising the positives. No, it's really good. As you're talking there, one thing I'm thinking about is, you know, if you're doing a segment on non-dominant foot, for example, in academy football, that's a really good way of doing it. Crossbar challenge, non-dominant foot. You can't come back in until you do it. And it gives yeah. them, um, you know, an opportunity to go and practice that and try and work on that non-dominant. We said, like, you know, all, all the top players, well, most of the top players can use their non-dominant foot, maybe not as much as the, the better one. But, yeah, I think, I think that's a really nice way of doing it. Um, and I'd imagine f- for you, having the variation of activities is important as well. So you mentioned that like, some are football-related, but also some I think I've seen online that, almost like bowls and trying to get throw it in a certain area and it allows you just to cater to I guess the the standard of the group but also the engagement for certain individuals and all that type of stuff as well yeah you can make the scoreboards really age and stage appropriate um so yeah it might be you know flicking a a ball into into a trash can Uh, we do the water bottle flip challenge because the kids love that so they come over they, they flip the water bottle and it lands the right way up that's a point and you know the kids will they'll play the game like it's a World Cup final because they want to come and flip the water bottle. You know, it's, it's it's crazy, but in my experience, it works. But we spoke earlier about autonomy as well. Some of the best scoreboards I've seen have been designed by the players and challenging them to design a scoreboard. And if they've designed it, they're desperate for a shot at it. You know it works. You know it's age and stage appropriate because they've came up with it. And the kids have came up with unbelievable scoreboards. Um, they, they do one that's called Hangman. So, like, my team has a mannequin. Uh, your team has a mannequin. Um, and it's the first person to dress the other team's mannequin. It's got a hat, a scarf, sunglasses, goalie jersey, goalie gloves. Um, and when I get praised and sent to the scoreboard, I run over and I put an item of clothing on the opposite team's uh, mannequin. And it's the first team to dress a mannequin. Now, you should see how much effort you're getting in the small-sided games just because they want to come in and put a pair of sunglasses on a mannequin. You know, Hangman's a, a fantastic scoreboard that, you know, I never would have thought of. Um, we've got the egg and spoon race as well, so that that's one that some some young girls um quite locally to here done, um where you put the egg on the spoon, you dribble the ball, you stop the ball in an area, you come back, the egg falls off the spoon, then you need to bring the ball back, you don't you don't get the point, um and what they did that which was really creative and really good when all the balls were going from the central kind of stream, they could then take a ball from the other team's scoreboard and dribble it over to theirs uh, again with an egg on a spoon, 
So some of them, you'd have to go on the website to see it. And also there's a free mobile app as well for, for scoreboard soccer for all these games and uh, and more practices and games beyond that. Um, yeah, some of the scoreboards are great. And the real key thing that I'm doing a lot of coach education around just now, and if anyone's listening and thinking this would be great for my fellow coaches, you know, I, I do Zoom calls and, and presentations on it. If you're a brand new volunteer coach and you're just starting your journey, you need to put your hand up, in my opinion, and I wish I was good at this when I was younger. Uh, I did a lot of players I worked with at this service when I was younger. You need to see yourself as a facilitator of football. We're going to set up a game, we're going to let them play football, and I'm going to catch them doing good through a scoreboard. And and that that's you. And as you go on more courses and do more badges and do more reading, then you can start to add things to that environment. But don't add things to that environment until you have the skill set to do so. But the more qualified coaches that I see the scoreboard soccer, and obviously I do a lot of this myself, depending on the programme, as we'll be playing scoreboard soccer, Michael will score, and I'll say, great goal, Michael, you come to the scoreboard. The other team will grab the ball and start playing. You know, the game continues as the players at the scoreboard, if I didn't mention that, the game always keeps going. Now you've got a 3v2, so there's loads of coachable moments as well. If they get success and they learn within the environment, great. Your environment's strong enough that you don't need to go in and coach. But if they are unsuccessful in 3v2s or they keep giving the ball away or they all drive forward, the two win the ball, they pop it into Michael coming back from the scoreboard, he scores again. You can have moments where it's like, right, hold on, guys, what happened there? What might you do next time? Well, I guess two of us could go 2v2 and one of us could sit back and give a little bit of balance to the team for a cutback and a shot. Great. There's loads and loads of coaching in it as well. There's attacking overloads, there's defending outnumbered, there's 1v2s, there's 1v3s, having to dribble, take on two or three players. You can manipulate all that depending on how many players you send to the scoreboard. You might just be sending players constantly because actually you want to facilitate some 2v2s on the pitch. Um, if, if that kind of makes sense, it, it probably is more from, for, a, for, a, for a presentation. As I say, I'm happy to do that with any coaches that are, that are interested. But now you have this environment, and this is why I've put myself out there and, and, and did the website and, and, and did the app and things like this, because I've seen so many benefits. It's a games-based approach. It's um, developing effort and really, really praising effort. So my players are working really hard and they're developing through practice. Um, it's individual technique at the scoreboard. There's some player autonomy, as we've touched on. But then there's also some coaching, getting your players better at 3v3s, 4v3s, 1v2s. There's loads and loads of different problems to solve within it. That was You kind of answered my next question, which was going to be how do you facilitate this in an academy environment? Because having done a bit of research on you, I know you've done some work uh, with Hearts previously, etc. So how did you find mirroring, I guess, having a curriculum and working to a, a way of play or a style of play that club has, and then obviously trying to incorporate some of this, um, I guess, out of the box thinking to a certain degree into your environment? How did you find that with you know those academy type players? Yeah, well, when you're working in academies, as you're right, there might be a kind of longer term, you know, blueprint or development program and that kind of thing. Uh, and it's just kind of trying to fit it in where necessary, but don't fit it in if, it, if it's not applicable. You know, if you're working on overloads, then scoreboard soccer would be a great thing. If you're working on defending outnumbered, then scoreboard soccer would be a great thing. If you're coming back from a pre-season and you want some fitness, small-sided games are great. So do scoreboard soccer games just for that extra bit of fun. If you've had a rough defeat at the weekend and we're, we're now talking about higher level football, scoreboard soccer might just get your players uh, uh, buzzing again. So it's really just, it's not the be all and end all. I, I do loads of scoreboard soccer, but I also do loads of game related practices, condition games, rondos, phases of play, principles of play, playing out from the back. It's just something for your listeners to fit in where they think it's necessary. 
Um, used it a bit within academies, um, probably more so with the grassroots clubs, to be honest. But to, to, to be fair, and I won't name any names at, at this stage because it's not appropriate, I've had a couple of academies write to me just to come in and do kind of guest sessions of scoreboard soccer because they've seen it online and they really like the idea of, uh, you know, fun, motivational effort over outcome uh, in coaching, uh, attacking outnumbered and defending outnumbered, etc., etc. So I've went in and there's a couple of clubs that I do sessions now and then for because I think it, it really does fit in with their younger players because it's really crucial for these younger players. I know when you get a bit older and uh, within academy setups, you know, there will be more strategic stuff and more tactical stuff, but the younger players, what they really want is players that can, you know, play the game and make split decisions. And I've, I've been in programmes before, and again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't name the programmes um, where, you know, young boys and girls have came in on trial, six-week trial, they get two games within that, um, and I'm not just specifically talking about in Scotland here, so this is um, uh, in some of the countries I've worked in as well. Uh, and then if they don't make the programme, mum or dad or whoever it may be is always desperate to know um, why they've not made it. You know, do they need to scan more? Do they need to strike the ball better with their weaker foot? Um, do they need to pass and move more? And how often it comes down to, and this is the opinion of me and a lot of other coaches, they've just not played enough football. They've just not played enough football. It's going back to that demise of street football. And, and a lot of people not building the game into their, their organised sports. They've just not been exposed to uh, constant transitions, defending, uh, rebounding, getting up and down the pitch. One minute you have the ball, one minute you don't. It was 3v3, 4v3. They've just not been exposed to football fitness, changing direction, taking players on. There's loads of benefits of playing the game. Then, of course, mum or dad says, you know, but I take I take them to one-to-one sessions five times a week. You're saying, well, that's five times a week where they're not playing football. You know, one-to-one sessions are great, but all these skills in isolation, they need to be there to facilitate play. So that's that's what a lot of academies want. Again, I can't speak for all of them, but certainly some of the programs I've been involved in, you know, kids that can play the game and make split-second decisions, and it's not about the outcome. You know, they might give the way the ball 99 times, but that's only because they've got on the ball 99 more times than anybody else. They're just constantly getting on the ball with that effort. It's effort over outcome. And that player with time will probably become one of the best players because they just never give up and they just always get on the ball. So I'm not, I'm not sure if that, that makes sense. But yeah, I think it sits in really well with the younger age groups um, within academies uh, because we need a solid foundation of playing the game and we need a solid understanding that um, with the younger age groups, it's effort over outcome. No, that, that that does make sense for sure. And I guess tying in um, a little bit of both, obviously... You're working uh, quite a lot on the development side. You've worked in performance side, if that's what you want to call it as well. Have you seen much of a change um, in terms of uptake or feeling, et cetera, with the success of the national team? Obviously, where they're doing better and qualifying for stuff and you're seeing, I guess, a, a team you guys can be really, really proud of at the minute. Have you seen much of a difference in what that's actually facilitated at the grassroots level? Just uh, yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's crucial because, you know, when the, the team are doing well and more people just get invested in it. Um, and, you know, as kind of mentioned as well, it's I do a lot of work within the girls and women's games. So to see the women's national team doing well, they've got three wins on their own and they play again tonight in a tough game against Sweden. Um, you know, younger girls aspire to, to that, especially when you see they're now playing at Hamden uh, and they're getting, you know, crowds of, uh, you know, five and six and seven thousand. Uh, and younger girls are in the crowd and um, seeing these role models on the pitch, seeing these role models on TV. There's a increase in the, the Scottish Women's Premier League of um, you know female coaches 
there's an increase of female referees. Um, it's it's great when the national team are are, are doing well, um, and it, it can give young girls in particular real aspirations to go and be involved uh, in that. And and obviously the men's team are are doing well as well. No, it's great. People certainly invest in that a lot more when the when, when the team are doing well, and you know they're certainly certainly doing well at the moment. No, I think that um, from the outside looking anyway, it looks like a really good time to be a part of it. So um, hopefully that continues, just not not against England. Um, so <laughs> last uh, question for me, because obviously time's caught up with us, um, which is who is the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why? Best player or coach I've worked with or against and why? Well, that's a really good one because you, you hear so many coaches that... Um, they talk about like a coach that maybe inspired them when they were younger, and that's why they became a coach. I was the opposite. I've seen a lot of coaches that you know over-instructed, made us stand in lines, made us run around the pitch, and inspired me to do a wee bit different. And um, I apologise if this is a bit of a name drop here, but the first person that made me think differently, because you, you only know what you know, but the first person that kind of spun it around for me in regards to having fun and learning by having fun was actually Kevin Keegan. Um, so when I was when I was studying at university um, for my sports coaching degree, I had to get a part-time job to, to fund my studies. And Kevin Keegan opened a soccer circus in Glasgow, kind of just thinking he would have put his name on it and he would never be there. Um, and then he walked and he sat down at the other side of the desk for my job interview. And that was a little bit off-putting straight away, you know, a bit starstruck. But, you know, soccer circus was all about, you know, fun. It was like, it was a bit like a, a football version of mini golf. You know, you were trying to hit the knock over targets and pass the ball through holes and dribble over lasers. And, you know, there was so much research behind um, how much football fitness you were getting and how many touches of the ball you were getting during these games. And the kids were just loving it. And it was great. And um, we also had a kind of small five-a-side pitch where we would do, you know, mainly things like birthday parties. But the weekends we'd put on like striker clinics and technical clinics and, you know, sessions where you could sign up to be coached by Kevin Keegan. And it was all kids and it was all fun. So for me going from, um, you know, the experience I had as coaches to come in and see how much better these kids were getting in a fun, nurturing environment, that's what made me think, right, this is the way I'm going to coach. And, and I've not came across anything that's kind of uh, changed that opinion. That, um, and scoreboard soccer's probably been born from that experience all those years ago. Um, scoreboard soccer as a, a full curriculum and a full, full book with all the ideas is coming out in, in January 2022. And I was really fortunate that uh, Kevin Keegan's actually wrote the foreword for that because we had a discussion recently um, to say to him, look, Kevin, these are the drills and this is what I do. And he's like, that's that's brilliant. Like, that's exactly what it's all about. You, you know, um, sometimes coaches focus too much on what young kids can't do and we should be focusing on what they can do. And that's where scoreboard soccer comes in. So, yeah, from a from a coaching point of view, um, the main one would be Kevin Keegan. Um, but then when I went to coach abroad in Dubai in America, I could probably name 10 or 15 coaches because... When you go and coach abroad in one of these countries that open out their arms to foreign expertise, you get exposed to a Spanish way of coaching, a Dutch way of coaching, an English way of coaching, um, Philippine way of coaching. We had a really good uh, coach from the, from the Philippines. Um, that was really, really good. There's probably five or six coaches within that that sphere that, that I still keep in touch with and we, we bounce ideas off of. But if I had to pick one, it would be, it would be Kevin Keegan. I think, yeah, pretty good answer. One of the better ones I've had on here. So and I can see why obviously you would have learned a lot from him. But there's some really appreciated time, some really interesting content and some really good considerations for people uh, when they obviously put in practices, practices and whatnot on. So uh, hopefully you can catch up again soon. And yeah, thanks very much for your time. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.